1969, a plan to show support for an anti-racism protest turned the lives of 14 promising black student-athletes upside down. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Hello, welcome to the documentary from the BBC World Service. I'm James Reynolds, and in BBC OS Conversations, we bring people together to share their experiences. And this time, conversations on deep fake attacks. As artificial intelligence gets more powerful, it's increasingly being used as a force for good and bad. We hear from people who've been on the receiving end of malicious intent. A mother and daughter share their story of a distressing AI-generated phone call. And two women tell us how they were targeted. There are literally people out there who've taken the time out of their day to collect images of me, to find other people's bodies that resemble my own, to stitch it up together, to make videos. I mean, that is some predatory, horrific behaviour. The term deepfake describes how artificial intelligence, AI, can be used to digitally alter pictures, audio, video, and trick us into seeing or hearing something that isn't real. Taylor Swift was one of the latest to be targeted. As we've discussed previously here on BBC OS Conversations, anything to do with Taylor Swift immediately goes viral. So, when the technology was used to create explicit faked photos of her, they were viewed many millions of times online. And a few days earlier, some voters in the US received a phone call claiming to be from President Biden. Now under investigation, these hoax calls were also suspected to have been artificially generated. But it's not just the famous who are being impersonated using AI technology. Our first conversation is with Jennifer and her 15-year-old daughter, Brianna, in the US state of Arizona. I want to take you back to the time in which Mum Jennifer receives a disturbing phone call as she's taking her other younger daughter to a dance class. So I answer the phone and it's my older daughter, Brianna, and she's crying and sobbing and she's saying, Mom, and I said, okay, what happened? And she goes, Mom, I messed up and continue to cry and sob. And then all of a sudden the man said, put your head back, lay down. And then that's when I started to get really concerned that she was either really hurt or something more was going on. And then all of a sudden she goes, Mom, these bad men have me. Help me, help me, help me. And she starts crying and sobbing and pleading for me as another man gets on the phone. And he goes, listen, here, I have your daughter. You call the police, you call anybody. I'm going to pop her stomach so full of drugs and have my way with her. I'm going to drop her in Mexico. And at that point was when I obviously started panicking and just started screaming for help. My younger daughter was in the lobby at the time. Um, so she could hear as I had the phone on speaker and three moms happened to be around the corner. One of them immediately went outside and called 911. The man proceeded to then demand a ransom. And it originally started a million dollars. That was not possible. So he got really upset with me on that. So then he came up with $50,000. So with the $50,000, I started asking him how he wanted to receive the money. At that point, the mom who had went outside and called 911 came back in and, and tipped us off that where people can take someone's voice with AI and they can replicate their voice. So they were asking me if it sounded like a recording and absolutely was not a recording. I had an interactive conversation and she's like, okay, well just keep in mind that there is this AI scam. So that gave me hope, but it still didn't give us any resolve. I had no idea. You know, I was confident I had spoken to my daughter. So the first mom went back outside and started petitioning for the police to come. 
at that point in time, the man, when I was asking him how he wanted to receive the money, the wire, whatnot, he refused a wire and he wanted to physically come pick me up. It was going to be in a white van with a bag over my head and I better have all the cash. Otherwise, Brianna and I were both going to be dead. He was trying to make those arrangements when the second mom came and finally was able to locate my husband who was able to locate Brianna. And he just came upstairs screaming, Brianna! And I was like, yeah. And he's like, didn't say anything else and just walked out of my room. And he was continuing to talk to my sister that I was okay. And then I remember a couple minutes later, I was like, okay, well, that was just really weird. And my brother called me. Bri, you good? I was like, yeah. And then he just hung up. And I was like, okay, what's going on? Like, this is really weird. And then my sister called me, but it was my mom speaking off of my sister's phone. She was, like, crying, sobbing, like, telling me what just happened, like, just breaking down. Like, I could not break out a single word that she said because she was just bawling her eyes out. Um, I think it wasn't until maybe a day later when my mom finally called me back and was like, you were kidnapped, but it was an AI scam. And it just kind of invoked a sense of fright, but not for myself, more just for my family, because obviously I had no affiliation to the phone call at the time, besides the fact that it was myself speaking through AI. And I was more worried, what if they had like location of my mom? What if they had location of my sister? What if they were onto my family? Like they weren't going to end this. Like I was scared to be in public places by myself. It made me more cautious everywhere I went. Brianna, as the person who had their voice cloned, if that's the right word, or put through AI, what does that feel like? Kind of a sense of just invasion. I mean, I don't understand how they got my own voice because I own social media accounts, but it's not like a TikTok where I'm speaking to people all the time or it's not like videos of me engaging with my audience, with my voice. It's more of just my sports clips and photos of my family. Nothing. I have nothing of just my voice. That just leaves the mystery of how they could have gotten a clip of my voice. It's just crazy how now I have to be way more cautious with literally everything I do. The crying and the sobs, it was what threw me off because it was so her. It was so real. It was the way she would have cried and sobbed. It was the way she would have interacted. It's what she said. That's what threw me for the loop. So where we got the cries and sobs, I have no idea. Like Bree said, she doesn't really have big social media accounts. I mean, her TikTok has like 40 followers and it's private. That's really more where the mystery is. Jennifer, what does this do to your ability to trust the voice you hear on the phone now? So I used to answer the phone and I just say hello and, uh, you know, you engage more when you answer the phone. Now I don't engage at all because even the smallest sound bite, you know, someone can use your phone, uh, use your voice, that smallest sound bite. Uh, even Bree's voicemail on her phone is from when she was prepubescent, when she was nine years old. So it's not her mature voice. So it really does make you start to question validation. I've had a couple of people reach out in conjunction with this, and I wouldn't respond because I don't know the authenticity. It's a whole new world. It's a whole new perspective. It's like taking the wool off your eyes where now you have this revelation that you have to really be concerned about validation when you talk on the phone. Have the police investigated at all to work out what kind of group or what kind of individual this might have been? 
The police were not able to take a report or anything at that time because they had nothing to pursue, so there were no actions being taken. When the story came out, my phone carrier actually reached out to me a couple times, but again, the authentication of who am I speaking to, so I didn't respond to them until they gave me very specific information about the phone call, then I did respond to them. So they were tracking, they supposedly found the source um, and the 800 number that was used. Now the police are able to take some action, but we're pursuing the ability for them to take more action right now with a Senate bill that's on the floor in the Senate in Arizona that will deem AI as a weapon. And if we can get that classification and then we can use it as um, aggravation and bring people hopefully to justice and stop this. Going back to Brianna, you're, you're 15, you're, you're still in high school. This traumatic thing happened to your family. Why are you speaking out publicly about something which to your family was just obviously so horrible and, and you might want to put behind you? I'm speaking out publicly because everyone needs to be aware that this situation is real. A lot of people would just assume like, oh, it's just an AI scam. It wouldn't happen to me. It's just one person but happened to me and I had no idea. And it's quite easy if you don't take the precautions to restrict this from happening to you. If you go on social media and most girls my age will go on to make TikToks about themselves and they'll just be speaking to the public, they're not aware that what they're doing is just inviting these AI scammers in. And so I just do it for the safety of everyone to be aware that the situation's real. So absolutely, people have become more aware. I've had so many people reach out and say thank you because they received phone calls. And since this came out and they're aware of it now, they handled it much differently and were aware of the, the, the likeliness of it being AI. However, it's still always a real possibility that maybe one time there would be a real call. But in general, the majority of these calls are AI related. But what's also interesting is I've had a lot of people come forward to who have absolutely zero idea because the person's voice that was taken is either a young child uh, that has no phone access, that's not ever videoed, actually one that's actually protected through a custody situation, um, was intentionally not anywhere on internet, and then as well as with someone else who had an elderly relative who was not anywhere on the internet. So now it's starting to cross over into conversations about Social media is the low-hanging fruit, but it is not the absolute. And and in thinking that it is the absolute, people think that they're immune to it when anyone's susceptible to it. I want to ask a question now, but you're welcome to say that you can't answer because I don't want to give away anything that you might be doing in order to keep you safe, and then which in turn makes things more difficult. So I'll ask, and you can say no, and we can move on if you like. Given what happened to your family, do you have any particular steps or protocols or questions that you would ask each other when you get a phone call just to know it's the real you? We do have a code word, um, so we can ask that. And then the other thing I also always reinforce is communication of where we're going, where we're going to be. So not only just the code word, but then it can has the sniff test too. And so again, with this situation, if I didn't know where Brie was and I didn't know who she was with, I wouldn't have been able to have located her so quickly. So I push both a code word and then communication as well. How are your lives right now? Is this something that you as a family, you just get over and move on with the rest of your lives? Well, personally, I was not affiliated with the phone call physically in the moment. So I was not as impacted as my mother and my sister. 
just being more cautious in everyday life. Yeah, the impact is definitely on me. And the impact, a lot of it was on her sister, too. So her sister was 13 at the time. And, you know, as I'm trying to dissect this whole process, she's standing right there listening to the whole phone call. And I didn't realize how much of an impact that had on her until this year she had to write an essay for school. And the essay was titled Scar. And you had to write an uh, essay about something that had scarred your heart. So people wrote about losing their grandparents or a pet. We did lose one of our dogs, um, unfortunately. It was uh, an unfortunate attack by another animal. But um, in that process, she wrote the story about the time when she lost her sister, and she thought she had lost her sister forever, and what all these bad men were doing to her sister, and she visualized her sister in pain, and what they were saying they were doing to her. And that moment haunts her more than anything else. And some of her friends even asked her, well, but it wasn't real. Like you really did lose your dog, but you didn't really lose your sister. Why would you write about that? She's like, but in that moment, it was so real that I did lose her for that period of time. And that haunted her. There is so much in that story from Jennifer and her daughter, Brianna, isn't there? Can you imagine that happening to you and how you would react? The legislation that Jennifer mentioned will be discussed by Arizona legislators over the coming days. I'm James Reynolds. You're listening to BBC OS Conversations on deepfake attacks from the BBC World Service. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. The idea of manipulating media isn't new, is it? Uh, Since the earliest days of photography and film, images have been adjusted to rewrite reality or change history. It's a tactic particularly favoured by dictators. One of the most famous examples was the way in which the Soviet leader, Joseph Stalin, decided to have his rival, Leon Trotsky, removed from photos, airbrushed out of history as if he'd never existed. And technology has, of course, made the process of adjusting images so much easier. I wonder... In all honesty, have you ever been tempted to use a filter on your phone to improve or tweak your appearance? But artificial intelligence provides the means to create media from scratch, generating completely fake content. My colleague, Luquesa Barak, brought together two women who've had their faces manipulated using AI, they don't know by whom, to produce malicious pornographic images and videos. Noel Martin is an activist, lawyer and researcher in the Tech and Policy Lab at the University of Western Australia in Perth. And Lauren Book is the Democratic leader in the Florida Senate in the U.S. And before you listen, I should warn you that some of their descriptions are explicit. It was a regular day and I had somebody reach out to me and say they had a proposition for me and then sent some of these horrific images to me and began exploiting me with sex and money to keep silent about it. Um, It was truly horrific, something I could not even imagine being a victim of a sex crime as a child. Never thought it would happen to me again, and, and for it to, to happen in that way was something I, I never thought could be possible. So my story has been carrying on for the last 11 years, and actually a little bit before that because I found out about people creating 
doctored pornographic images and sharing them on the internet when I was 18. And over time, they have escalated. And as the years passed, they also created deepfake videos of me, pornographic deepfakes that falsely depicted me having sexual intercourse and performing oral sex. And they've just kept taunting and trying to intimidate me ever since. What did you do next? How easy was it to go and speak to someone? Well, for me, it was um, because there was an element that I was an elected official at the time and there was a threat of, you know, exploitation. I was able to reach out to law enforcement that we have and they were able to take over my device and begin communicating with this individual. But they target all types of girls and women. And, And yes, of course, this can happen to men, but, you know, teachers, social workers, we've met a lot of these survivors since that time. And while I was able to utilize law enforcement, that's not the same across the board. You know, I have several folks that that reach out who law enforcement basically just tell them, so sorry, there's really nothing we can do. And that's, you know, the deep fake issue is so dangerous because it is something that was created and you have no ownership of and have very little rights to get them taken down. The exact same thing happened to me where, you know, I went to police. I tried doing what I thought I should do. But at the time, there were no specific laws that dealt with this issue. So I was left to try and take down the the images myself. And um, I learned very quickly that that was a completely futile process. And it's a never-ending battle. And it's one that you can never win because you can never guarantee that you'll ever completely get the images removed or that it won't pop up again weeks, months, years later. And so you're just in this situation where you're completely powerless, helpless, and there's really no support that's available. Has this changed your relationship or your attitude with the internet? It has for me. And I've always had a a boundary around social media as an elected official, one that you have to balance. And as a victim of childhood sexual abuse, taught my kids differently than, than I grew up. But one in five children will be solicited for sex online. We know the numbers. We know the reality. And it's really important that we continue to have these conversations and know where our kids are, know the things that they're using, but also be very aware of our own digital footprint. You know, I agree with everything that's just been said. I, I've adopted a different kind of approach because I really feel strongly that women in particular shouldn't have to self-censor or alter the way that they participate and show up in our social and cultural and economic life. The internet and social media is a part of our life and it is a part of our life in every way and even as a means for economic opportunity. And the implication is for women that how do you deal with this? Maybe you kind of be careful what you do, cautious about what you do online. Then they miss out. And actually the people who are disproportionately affected by this, you know, vulnerable communities, minorities, they miss out. And you're further entrenching the injustices that already exist in our society. So actually I've taken a different approach where I'm I'm more present online and I will not change the way that I dress and I will not change the way I post. And I get all the other aspects of this about, you know, digital footprints. And I think it should be a choice and people can make an informed decision about what's right for them. 
but women shouldn't have to be deprived of things because there is a threat of people abusing them. That's not the world that I want to live in. To both of you, Anna Noel, you said that you, you are still fighting the battle in terms of um, getting those images taken down. But did you ever get to the root of, of who was responsible for this? And if you could come face to face with them, what would you say to them? I don't even know what I would say, but I think what I find really disgusting and almost surreal is that, you know, when you think about it, there are literally people out there who have taken the time out of their day to collect images of me, to find other people's bodies that resemble my own, to stitch it up together, to make videos, to then post it online and like create threads and websites and to do this over and over again. I mean, that is some predatory horrific behavior and like I'm not like I've never been I'm not a celebrity you know I'm just like an ordinary person and I don't have enemies that I can think of so just to think that there are people out there that are doing this is so weird like it's so bizarre I don't even know what I would say to them but I just I find it quite disturbing. I think that for me I am angry because of what my children may have to see one day they're never going to go away. And so it's very painful. It's very difficult. It's something that I think about often. And no one understands that I'm going to have to have a conversation with my kids about this. And the pain is there forever. Like we said, they'll never go away. And to think and know that there are people out there that are doing those things are despicable, disgusting. You don't even know sometimes when it's happening until somebody sends them to you. Um, and that is just truly something I, I never could just always, you know, wrap my mind around. Just on the on the subject of family and friends, how difficult was it to tell family and friends what had happened to you both? I immediately had to have very, you know, painful conversations. I had to tell my dad, I had to tell my husband, have conversations. I mean, those are very out of the body, out of the universe conversations that you never think you're going to have. And you're lucky when you have family in your life and in your corner who say, okay, let's go fight. Let's go get them down. Let's go do what we have to do. Because that's not always the case. Yeah. I mean, I found it quite hard because, you know, I'm from a ethnically Indian Catholic family and having these conversations is not something that we do. So it took me about a year to even tell them. And I remember vividly, it was just like, a blip of a conversation. I didn't really describe it. And then we just never talked about it for, I don't know, maybe a couple of years after that. It's getting out of that initial crisis mode, finding people to surround you that can support you, knowing that if law enforcement can't be helpful, that you're going to still be okay. You know, as we've been talking about throughout the course of, of our time together, it's an immense cost to try to remove some of these things, knowing full well that you may never be able to get them all down. But finding people that understand the pain and how difficult it is and who will walk alongside you so you don't feel alone. Uh, this is something I never have experienced in my life. The pain, the shame, the guilt for no reason of my own, right? Because there are bad days and there are, are good days. But the most important thing is that you don't feel alone because this happens more than anyone, anyone, anyone cares to think or talk about. Lauren Book in Florida and Noah Martin in Western Australia. Our thanks to all of our guests for sharing their stories this week, leading you, I'm sure, to have the same questions that I have. How do we know if something is real? 
Uh, we should mention that the big tech firms say that they are taking action, including a new promise to introduce technology to detect and label AI-generated images. But as we've been hearing, it is almost impossible to completely remove fake pictures and videos from the entire internet. I'm James Reynolds. You've been listening to the documentary from the BBC World Service. <laughs>